This episode of the Inside Oz podcast is brought to you by Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Borderlines, the new single from Max Feinstein. Available now on Spotify, Apple Music, and all major streaming platforms. This episode of Inside Oz contains strong language as well as discussions about strong violence and sexual content. not want to see my anger. My anger is massive, all-encompassing. Being accused of three disses. Disloyal, dishonest, disrespectful. I don't disagree that there's evil in the world. I do disagree that we're powerless against it. You know, if I was a girl, you'd get tough. She's a girl, so you'd be butt-ass ugly. She's getting married? To a Bobby? No, no, not a Bobby, Tim. He's a guard. He guards the queen. Yeah, well, then I can see how they've got a lot in fucking common! Try to find the common thing that binds us all. Crime. Crime is the common thing. See, we are all of us back here. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Inside Oz, the original. Oz Review Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Neil Thompson. We're past the midway point of this first block of Series 4 episodes, but if you need to catch up on any episodes that you might have missed, you can do so by heading into the show's archives, which you've probably seen wherever you found this episode, whether that's Apple Podcasts, or Podbean, or Acast. But I'll give you all the details on where you can find all of the other episodes at the end of the show. Today, though, we're going to be taking a look back at Series 4, Episode 5, Grey Matter. Holding an 8.5 on IMDb, the episode was written by Tom Fontana with additional writing by Sunil Nair and Bradford Winters, and Sean Weitzel as executive story editor. The episode was directed by guest director Brian Cox, and it is the only piece of TV or film direction that he has undertaken. Born June 1st, 1940 in Dundee, Scotland, Brian attended school locally and joined Dundee's Repertory Theatre at the age of 14 before heading to London at the age of 17 to attend the London Academy of Music and Dramatic Art. Brian would join Edinburgh's Lyceum Company in 1965, followed by two years with the Birmingham Rep, where he made appearances in productions of Peter Gint and As You Like It, with Brian making his London stage debut in a production of the show at the Vaudeville Theatre in June 1967. During this time, Brian also earned a number of minor roles on TV, with his first recurring role coming in 1969 on the BBC's Z Cars, followed by three episodes of ITV's Manhunt in 1970. Brian would make his film acting debut in 1971's Nicholas and Alexandra, and would earn recurring roles on TV in The Master of Ballantrae in 1975, Rooms in 1977, and The Devil's Crown in 1978, a show which received tremendous critical acclaim at the time. In 1984, Brian won Best Actor in a New Play at the Olivier Awards for his appearance as Inspector Nelson in the Royal Court's production of Rat in the Skull, 
and would make his Broadway debut the following year, appearing in Strange Interlude at the Nederlander Theatre. In 1986, Brian shot to international fame after appearing in Michael Mann's Manhunter, the movie adaptation of Tom Harris' 1981 novel Red Dragon. Despite the film being a box office failure upon release, although it has since become something of a cult classic, Brian's portrayal as Dr. Hannibal Lecter was singled out for praise among critics. An accomplished Shakespearean actor, Brian appeared for the Royal Shakespeare Company and National Theatre in productions of Taming of the Shrew in 1987, Titus Andronicus in 1988, for which he won an Olivier Award, as well as 1990's King Lear, which we'll talk more about a little later on. With recurring roles in 1992's The Big Battalions and 1994's Grushko, Brian would appear in Rob Roy and Braveheart in 1995, the only man to appear in both Scottish hero movies which did battle at the box office that year. Along with credits in 1996 for Chain Reaction, The Glimmer Man and The Long Kiss Goodnight, Brian would return to the Broadway stage in 1998, appearing in art at the Royale Theatre. In 1999, Brian appeared in the movies Rushmore and For the Love of the Game, and would return to TV in 2000 for the miniseries Nuremberg, as well as appearing in Dublin Carol at London's Old Vic Theatre, before directing Here on Oz. The episode was originally broadcast on August 9th, 2000, a day on which Brian Keith Robertson and Oliver Cruz were executed by lethal injection in Huntsville, Texas, the 27th and 28th person to be executed in the state that year, while in the music charts, no change in the US singles charts, with NSYNC still holding on to the number one spot on the Billboard chart, while in the UK, Craig David was in the middle of his one-week reign at the top of the charts with seven days, possibly making love to someone if the lyrics are to be believed. The US album charts saw the American public embrace the compilation album by sending Now That's What I Call Music 4 to the charts' summit, while the Irish invasion of the UK chart continued with Boyzone's Ronan Keating striking out on his own with his debut solo album, simply titled Ronan, holding the top spot. The criminal mind. For the past 200 years, scientists, sociologists, and other folks who fret about such things have debated whether a person commits a violent act because of their environment or their biological makeup. What turns on the red crime light in a man's brain? If we find the cause, can we eliminate the effect? Can we end violence now and forever? Kick off with Act 1 in which Augustus says that for the last 200 years, scientists and sociologists and other folks who fret about such things have debated about whether or not a person commits a violent act due to their upbringing or their biological makeup, and questions what turns the red light of crime on in a person's brain. Augustus asks if we can find the cause, does that mean that we can eliminate the effect, and as a result end violence now and forever? A good opening this one, with Augustus getting somewhat philosophical, but the absolute highlight of this was the skeleton sporting Augustus dreadlocks. I also liked how the shot of Augustus' rotating head looked a lot like the video for Adamski and Seal's killer. Flash cut to the crime flashback of a new character, prisoner number 00G115, Detective Bruno Gergen, who we see arresting a weapons dealer before shooting the guy in the back and absconding with the weapons himself placing the case in the passenger seat of his car, and if you look closely, he slams the door so hard that he actually cracks the window. That ultimately doesn't prove successful though, as he is convicted of illegal possession and sale of firearms, as well as murder in the first degree, for which he has received a 36-year sentence, up for parole in 18. Bruno Gergen is played by Harry O'Reilly. 
Born Henry Thomas O'Reilly in Brooklyn, New York, Harry's first acting credits came in 1987 for the Vietnam War movie Hamburger Hill, as well as the movie Heart, a film which also featured Oz directing alumni Steve Buscemi, while in 1988 he made his TV debut appearing in The Street, as well as appearing in The Equalizer during the show's fourth season in 1989. In 1990, Harry became a regular on The Ben Stiller Show on MTV, and would appear in the pilot for the show's move to the Fox Network two years later. Harry's first recurring TV role came on ABC's Homefront, appearing as Sergeant Charlie Haley for 42 episodes between 1991 and 1997. In 1994, Harry appeared on six episodes of Hotel Malibu for CBS, alongside Jennifer Lopez and Joanna Cassidy, as well as appearing in the movie Reality Bites, playing the role of Wes McGregor. With credits for Comfortably Numb, The Cable Guy and Hudson River Blues throughout the mid-90s, Harry returned to TV in 1999 during the second season of HBO's Sex and the City, playing the role of Jack in the episode Evolution, while in 2000 he would appear in the movie The Opponent, before appearing here on Oz. So we see Bruno making his way through M-City after arriving, passing Mobe who's under the stairs pretending to get high with Poet, but he locks eyes with Bruno as he walks by. Poet asks Mobe whether or not he knows the new guy, but Mobe makes a joke about Bruno just being fucking ugly, Poet mocking Mobe's accent, which we've seen in a previous episode. Mobe and Bruno meet up later in Mobe's pod, Bruno mentioning that he was wondering what the fuck is Johnny Basil doing in ours, before remembering that Mobe had transferred to narcotics the previous year. Bruno mentions that he's already been filled in about Mobe's new identity, which I realise sounds odd as I talk about him in his Mobe persona, but he doesn't say who gave him the details, just referring to them as some greaseball, which is usually used as a slur against people from the Mediterranean or from Latin America, so it's possible that he's referring to someone from either the Italians or the Latinos. Mobe asks whether or not Bruno intends to blow his cover, but Bruno says that depends on what Mobe can do for him, and that none of the inmates are aware of him being a cop which formed part of his deal when giving evidence at his trial, and that he's also been given a new identity himself. So Bruno Gergen isn't the name that he's going by in M-City, but it's the only name that we're given for him. I don't think he's ever referred to by his new alias. Bruno says that if the inmates find out the truth about him being a cop, then he's a prime target for anyone looking to up their cred. Mobe asks what that has to do with him, Bruno telling him that one hand washes the other, and even refers to Mobe as his brother in blue. Mobe doesn't seem so taken with Bruno's approach, though, and says that the only thing he remembers about Bruno from their time working the streets together, an element of their relationship which seems to get glossed over, was that Bruno was a bully who used to needlessly strong-arm people, and says that Bruno was always a bad cop, and that he wasn't surprised when he heard that he'd been sent down. Bruno counters, asking whether or not Mobe wants him to tell the others about him being undercover, but before Mobe can answer, Augustus arrives back and enters the pod which leads to Mobe improvising a little and quickly assuming his Jamaican accent to tell Bruno that he'd be happy to help him in any way, as Bruno leaves saying that he's glad that they understand each other. As Bruno leaves the pod, he awkwardly pushes past Augustus and calls him Butch, something which annoys Augustus and he gives Bruno the finger. I've no idea if that's supposed to be a reference to anything in particular, or if it's just Bruno being a bit of a dick, but it's a pretty funny line nonetheless, as is Augustus' reaction to it. Later in the day, Bruno meets with Sister Pete in her office, Pete explaining how normally when a former officer lands in Oz, she tends to give them special counselling, explaining that going from a position of authority to being that of an inmate who's subjected to strip searches will be a tough one, 
and that Bruno may feel humiliated because of it. It's been a long time since we've seen any kind of strip search on the show. In fact, I think the only time we've ever seen it previously was back in episode 2 after Beecher met with Genevieve. Bruno doesn't think that he's the type of guy who would struggle with that kind of change though, which Pete does accept but leaves the option on the table for him should he ever need to visit with her in the future as Bruno gets up to leave. Before he goes though, Bruno tells Pete about how his wife is in fact a former nun, and that she fucks like a $500 whore. Which, is that expensive? Is that cheap? I wouldn't know. And says that it must be down to the years of pent-up chastity. So what we've got here is a bunch of short scenes in which Bruno is failing to endear himself to those around him. And that continues into the next one in the gym, where we see Mobe working out with some weights, and Bruno over on a treadmill. Which I don't remember ever seeing in the gym previously. Leo must have found some spare money in the budget and got some new equipment in. I also have to point out that Harry O'Reilly is quite clearly not actually running on this treadmill. We can hear that the machine is meant to be on, the sound effect of the belt running is there, but what is with that running action? It's here as well where we're introduced to two more new inmates, Mondo Brown played by Garner Grills and Leroy Tidd played by Jacques C. Smith. This is their first official appearances on the show, but it is believed that Leroy has appeared previously on the show as a background character, supposedly appearing back in Series 2 as one of the men trying to get a conjugal visit form from Sister Pete. I'd have to go back and look at that episode again to be certain of that though. Both of these characters each receive a crime flashback in future episodes, so I'll introduce them properly when we see those, but for now they head over to the treadmill and stand either side of Bruno, Mondo asking Leroy what it is that he hates the most, with Leroy saying that he hates white trash trying to act like thugs. Mondo then turns his attention to Bruno and asks how he feels about that. Ever the wordsmith, Bruno uses this piece of information and answers in the way that we've already come to expect from him. How about you, pussy? How you feel about that, huh? What I hate is giant-ass niggas. Obviously, this leads to Mondo and Leroy grabbing Bruno and pushing him against the fence and giving him a beating, which I can't say that he didn't deserve as Mobe does nothing to help his former colleague and makes a quick exit from the gym. Back in the M-City washroom, Mobe is having a shave when Bruno enters sporting a big comedy bandage on his head, asking how the fuck is this watching my back? Mobe tells Bruno that he got help as quick as he could, but Bruno says that Mobe should have got Mondo and Leroy off of him, describing them as apes. Mobe repeats that back to Bruno along with the N-word, and points out that if he jumped in and saved him, describing Bruno as a white redneck arsehole, then he might as well pack up and leave Oz. Bruno threatens Mobe, saying that if anything like this happens again, he's going to spill the beans to everyone about Mobe being undercover, and says that he'll be a dead man. Later in the day, as Mobe passes through M-City, he runs into Chucky, who asks him about whether or not Mobe has forgotten about the condition of joining up with the other leaders. Adabizi joins them and says that Quern's doesn't want any violence in M-City. So if Mobe's going to do the deed, he not only needs to make it look like an accident, but most importantly, he needs to do it far away from the unit. Mobe says that he understands as the three men go their separate ways, but Mobe takes a long look at a passing Augustus as we cut to nighttime with all of the inmates in their pods. Mobe whispers down to Augustus, but Augustus tries to fob him off saying that he's asleep, accompanied by some fake snoring. Mobe gets down from his bunk and tells Augustus that he needs his help, telling him about the situation with Adebisi and the others and how he has to kill someone. Augustus jokes about Mobe wanting him to volunteer to be the victim, but Mobe says that he's decided who he's going to kill, but that he needs Augustus' cooperation. 
Saying that the shit Mobea has been snorting has rotted his brain out, Augustus refuses to be part of Mobea's problem, and that he won't do it any way or how. The next day, Mobea meets up with Bruno in the computer room, saying that they have a problem. He tells Bruno that Augustus knows that Bruno is a cop, but that he'll keep quiet for a price and wants a meeting, as Mobea tells Bruno to meet him at the dress factory's freight elevator. They quickly formulate a plan to tip Augustus to his doom down the elevator shaft, as we cut to the corridor housing the elevator and Mobe opening up the doors. Bruno asks if Mobe is certain that Augustus is coming, as Mobe makes some final checks. Bruno says that you don't know how good you've got until it's gone, and that he'd give his right nut to be in the snow working a parade, throwing in some casual racism as that seems to be his thing. Mobe winks to Bruno to get into position as they hear Augustus coming, Augustus asking what it is that Mobe wants. Mobe quickly opens the doors to the shaft as Bruno spins Augustus around, asking whether or not Augustus thinks he has him over a barrel, and starts to push Augustus' chair towards the shaft. Augustus manages to grab a handle as Mobe tells Bruno to wait, and to let him be the one to kill Augustus. There's a struggle between the three men as Mobe eventually breaks Augustus' grip from the handle, and moves behind his chair. Before Bruno can get out of the way, Mobe pushes Bruno down the shaft, and we hear him land in a heap. Mobe tells Augustus that he should have let him tell him the plan as he looks down the shaft to Bruno, before pushing Augustus in his chair in order to make a quick escape. A shocked Augustus asking what the fuck is wrong with you and have you lost your fucking mind, as we see Bruno's corpse at the bottom of the shaft. So, time from his crime flashback starting to Bruno Gergen meeting his demise? Six and a half minutes, which I think might be a record for a character that gets given the crime flashback treatment and during which we've seen him have his initial meeting with Mobe, brag about his horny wife to Sister Pete, get in a fight with Mondo and Leroy, arguing with Mobe, and then formulate this plan to kill Augustus only to wind up taking the plunge himself. Also, get used to hearing that scream of terror as well as seeing Bruno take that fall, as we'll be seeing that a lot more during the course of this fourth series. Despite only being alive in this episode, we go back to this incident in flashback form so many times that Harry O'Reilly actually has five episode credits on the show, meaning that he will receive an appearance fee, although admittedly probably a very small one, every time that one of those episodes is aired or viewed or streamed or whatever, so fair play to him for that. First appearance of the freight elevator on the show too, seemingly coming into existence purely for this kill, as previously we've seen people killed in the stairwells, but obviously with Augustus being wheelchair-bound, that couldn't be the case this time, and presumably there is another elevator somewhere in Oz in order for Augustus to get to higher ground. Not surprisingly, Murphy locks the prison down in the wake of Bruno's death, Morales asking Mobe what the fuck happened as they pass each other, with Mobe mentioning to a passing Adebisi that someone died but that it was an accident and far away from M-City, just as requested. So the inmates make their way back to their pods, with Augustus telling Mobe that he's seriously considering asking to be moved to a different one, but Mobe is full of beans and tells Augustus to relax because the worst is over. It's probably the most happy that we've seen Mobe since he joined the show. He finishes off by taking a hit of drugs along with some delay and slow motion camera effects, before heading down to the visiting room to meet with Keena a.k.a.'s police partner, Detective Nancy Mears. Mobe mentions that he's told her previously about not coming to visit him due to Augustus feeling as though he recognised her, but Keena, again I'm sticking with their false names for ease of use, says that she's come to check on Mobe, 
mentioning that he's fallen behind on his email updates, and the ones that he does send make very little sense. Mobey admits that he was in the hole for a few days, to which Keener asks him whether or not he's been using, which Mobey of course denies. Keener, however, says that she can see it in his eyes and that she's going to tell their lieutenant to pull the plug on the undercover operation, but Mobey pleads with her to let him continue, and although admitting that he did fuck up, he's extremely close to breaking the case and asks for her to trust him. Away from Mobey and Keener, Augustus enters to meet with his wife, who I'm still not convinced is the same actress from back in the early episodes of the show. Keener notices this and finishes up her visit with Mobey, telling him that she wants to hear from him every day as the scene closes. So, a lot covered in this opening segment, which is something of a byproduct of having so many intertwining characters and storylines. There are occasions where things move along at a breakneck pace and perhaps don't get the screen time they need to develop. Bruno being brought in only to be killed off a few minutes later in an effort to tie up Mobe having to kill someone to get in with Adebisi and the others at least avoided Mobe killing off an established character. And we weren't really given any reason to warm to Bruno either, so that element of Mobe's story has been allowed to progress without having to lose a character that we've come to like. Fed up on Leo in his office having his makeup touched up for an upcoming video shoot for the campaign, and we get to meet his wife Mary for the first time, played here by Pamela Isaacs. This is one of those rare occasions where I couldn't find anything relating to a birthday or place of birth for Pamela, but I was able to find that Pamela made a stage debut in 1987 appearing in Conrack, a musical based on Pat Conroy's 1972 memoir The Water is Wild, produced by the AMAS Repertory Theatre Company. The following year, Pamela appeared as Effie in Michael Bennett's An Evening Dinner Theatre Company production of Dreamgirls in Elmsford, New York, while in 1989 Pamela played the role of Kay Jones in OK, which played at the Goodspeed Opera House in East Haddam, Connecticut, as well as the Birmingham Theatre in Detroit, Michigan. In 1992, Pamela reprised her role in Conrack at Ford's Theatre in Washington, D.C. between February and April, while in November through December, she appeared in the Coloured Museum at the Yale Repertory Theatre in New Haven, Connecticut. In 1993, Pamela appeared in her one-woman show at Centre Stage in Baltimore, Maryland, appearing as Billie Holiday in Lady Day at Emerson's Bar and Grill. A hit with critics, the show ended an extended run past its original run of scheduled dates, and Pamela would return to the venue in 1995, appearing in Happy End. It was during this time in Baltimore that Pamela made her TV acting debut appearing in Homicide Life on the Street during the show's third season, and two years later would make her first appearance in Law and Order in 1997 in the show's seventh season. From April 1997 to June 1998, Pamela appeared as Queen at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre in The Life, which played for 466 performances. For her role, Pamela was nominated for a Drama Desk Award for Outstanding Actress in a Musical, as well as the best performance by an actress in a leading role in a musical at the Tony Awards. In 1999, Pamela would appear at New York's MCC Theatre in Trudy Blue, as well as appearing in a revival of the play Working, based on Studs Terkel's book of the same name. Also that year, Pamela would return to TV appearing in One Life to Live, while in 2000 she appeared during the debut season of NBC's Third Watch, before appearing here on Oz. So Mary heads into Leo's office and says that they need to talk, Leo excusing himself from the shoot much to the director's annoyance, as he heads into his private washroom with Mary. Not even taking a moment to remove the tissue flaps from his collar, Leo asks Mary what's wrong, as Mary tells him that she's just had a call from a reporter asking about Leo's brother Mark, 
who you'll remember back in Series 2 was convinced by Leo to turn himself in on a murder charge back from when Mark was working for Shibeta's Mafia group. Leo says that he knew this day would come eventually, as Mary tells him that the press are preparing to break the story the next day, and want to know if Leo has any comment. Leo says that he has a few, although none of them are printable, as there's a knock at the door and the director of the shoot tries to hurry Leo along so they can get filming. Movie buffs among you will know that the man playing this director is the Academy Award-winning Jonathan Demme, perhaps most famous for winning the Best Director Oscar for Silence of the Lambs. The reason that he's in this episode was the result of an in-joke between himself and Brian Cox. Of course, Silence of the Lambs was the movie where Dr. Hannibal Lecter became ingrained in popular culture due to the performance of Anthony Hopkins, who had taken over the role from Brian Cox after Manhunter flopped to the box office. When Silence of the Lambs was scheduled to start filming, Brian Cox was unavailable due to appearing in King Lear at London's National Theatre, which in itself was somewhat ironic, as Hopkins was appearing in King Lear at the time that Cox was filming Manhunter. In fact, I think both actors shared the same agent at the time. Rather than wait for Cox to fulfil his commitments and to keep continuity, Deme recast Anthony Hopkins in the role, which has of course gone on to define much of his career. But this was sort of a, you wouldn't put me in yours, but I will put you in mine between Cox and Deme. And by all accounts, there was never any hard feelings between the two following the recasting. The baseball cap that Deme is wearing in this scene as well, the one for Playtone, that is the production company and record label of Tom Hanks and Gary Goertzman. It first appeared as a fictional record label in the film That Thing You Do, before being founded as an actual company and label in 1998. Jonathan Demme, to the best of my knowledge, was never involved with the company personally, although he did direct Tom Hanks in 1993's Philadelphia, so there is a slight connection there. So I can only imagine that this logo's appearance here is at the request from someone at HBO, because it was at this time that Playtone were involved with the production and subsequent soundtrack release for Band of Brothers, and were also in the middle of a deal of releasing soundtrack albums for The Sopranos, the first of which had been released in 1999, with the second to be released in 2001. So I reckon the appearance of this cap was something of a business agreement between the two companies. Following the shoot, Leo meets up with Devlin, who tells Leo that the news coming out about his brother isn't such a terrible thing, and that there is a way they can use it to their advantage, saying that they can play the angle that, yes, Leo's brother did commit murder, but it was Leo who got him to turn himself in. I can't help but feel as though this is a scene that has been reworked, as this is the kind of thing we would have seen from Wendy previously. Spinning things with the press was her job. But as we covered before, Dana Reeve had left the show by this point, so her dialogue seems to have been given to Devlin for this scene. Leo points out that he only managed to get Mark to turn himself in three months after the fact, but Devlin says that the press doesn't have to know that little detail, as Leo says that he's starting to feel like Ronald Reagan, which I believe is a reference to the Iran-Contra affair from 1986, the political scandal stemming from the sale of arms to Iran during the Iran-Iraq War, which was then ultimately used to fund the Contra rebels who were fighting against the government in Nicaragua. During the scandal, President Reagan, who was serving his second term at the time, claimed that he was unaware of any such plot to fund the Contras, an act which saw his approval rating plunge by over 20%, as well as resulting in 11 convictions and 14 indictments within Reagan's staff, although the president was never convicted of any wrongdoing. Devlin drops the bombshell that his team have also leaked the news of Ardiff's rape, saying that the public will love the fact that Leo knows all sides of crime. Leo, however, tells Devlin that he is not going to exploit Ardiff's rape to get elected, but Devlin says that the people don't vote for candidates because of what they believe or what they stand for, they elect based on the person, 
whether that's because they're a father or a husband or someone that they can chug a beer with. But most importantly, they want someone who understands pain. And because Leo has suffered what people have, Devlin thinks that they will weep for him. Despite Devlin's admittedly impassioned reasoning, Leo stands his ground and tells him no, which doesn't sit well with Devlin, who tells Leo that if that's the case, he needs to take his hat out of the ring, because Devlin needs a lieutenant governor who's got balls as he storms out in a huff. It doesn't take Leo long to fall in line though, as we cut to Leo conducting a press conference, with his loyal wife by his side, addressing the news about his brother to close out Act 1. I'm a family man. And there's nothing harder for a family man than to see those he loves suffer or cause suffering. My brother's crime devastated us. My daughter's rape did too. Act 2 opens up on Augustus referencing a study about how people are hardwired to commit violent crimes, and refers back to the title of the episode by saying that they have less grey matter in their prefrontal lobes. And like a mad scientist uses a battery to cause sparks to fly from a brain which houses what is definitely not a ping pong ball with a swatch sticker drawn on it. The transition out of this vignette is like something from an old Looney Tunes cartoon, and we come back up in Unit B where Schellinger is taking great joy in watching an in-progress fight between two unknown inmates. But Manus calls for a lockdown, Schellinger accusing him of having no sense of fun, as everyone is ushered back into their cells and McManus makes his way back to the office where the phone is ringing. He picks up the receiver to take a call from a familiar voice. Hello. Tim? Yeah. Diane. Yeah. How are you? I'm good. I wrote you, but uh, I didn't hear back. Did you get my letter? Yeah, I got it. I've been busy. I heard you're running Unit B now. My boys behaving themselves? Diane, what do you want? To see if you're okay. I'm good. I gotta go. So McManus definitely winning back Diane with his phone manner there. And this was the instance that I referred to a couple of episodes back. I knew we got this phone call at some point, but I just didn't remember the previous scene with the letter and McManus burning it. This is definitely the end of Diane on the show, but it was good to hear Edie Falco's voice one last time. She went uncredited here, which I always thought was a little harsh. Obviously, you don't want to give away her appearance in the intro credits, but I don't see why she couldn't have a guest-starring caption in the closing credits. I can only assume it was some kind of contractual issue. Cut to the changing rooms where Murphy fresh out of the shower sporting a white towel, runs into McManus and asks how things are over in Unit B. Asking Murphy if he wants the truth, McManus says that he misses Diane as well as M-City, but that he's also constantly constipated and has managed to completely and literally fuck up his entire life. Trying to break the tension by saying that constipation can be fixed, Murphy asks his old friend if he wants to grab a beer. But McManus, the legendary Lothario that we all know him to be, says that he can't because he has a date something which Murphy says seems to be the case every time he asks McManus if he wants to do something, and that he's starting to get paranoid. He asks McManus whether or not he's pissed at him, and at that point McManus slams his locker door closed and launches into a tirade at Murphy for not supporting him when Leo fired him, implying that his sympathy was fake before taking McManus' old job. 
Murphy protests and insists that he never wanted to replace McManus, even on a temporary basis, as McManus says that he brought Murphy into Oz, and that when he was fired, Murphy should have quit. Which, to borrow a quote from McManus himself, is bullshit. If Murphy had gone to Leo threatening to quit, Leo would have just accepted his resignation. Murphy would have looked a complete moron for doing that. The scene closes with McManus storming out as Murphy asks him to cut him a break. But it falls on deaf ears as we see McManus walking the dark halls of Oz taking a look at M-City from the entrance gate, pining for his former unit as he takes a look up to the window of his former office before heading off. I get that McManus is upset about losing M-City, and that maybe his friends might not have been there for him like he hoped, but I'm not with him in saying that Murphy should have walked out on his job as some kind of one-man protest, because from what we've seen on the show, I doubt that anybody else would be willing to go to bat for McManus, certainly on the CO side of things. Yeah, it kinda sucks to not have your friend fight your corner, but Murphy has to think of himself first and foremost, and Leo did ultimately bring McManus back, so he was looking out for his long-term colleague. It's not like he had some kind of obligation to bring him back, and McManus could do well to remember that. Fade to Saeed meeting with Querns in his office, as Querns thumbs through a file which he says describes Saeed as one incredible pain in the ass. Describing that as just one interpretation, Saeed reckons it could also be seen that he strives for justice where there isn't any. Querns, however, says that he strives for peace and quiet, mentioning Leo's no-violence mandate something which Saeed applauds Querns for, describing violence as something he abhors. Joking about those being sweet sentiments, Querns tells Saeed that he's thinking about making some changes around MC, and he's hopeful that Saeed won't stir up any trouble. Saying that that depends on what the changes are, Saeed asks what Querns has in mind, but Querns isn't willing to give anything away, telling Saeed to have patience, and he even quotes Saeed from his riot book, something which Quern says he found in McManus' drawer and gave a quick read. Seeking a glowing review, Saeed asked Querns what he thought of it, but Quern says that it didn't hold his interest and it was a tad too self-righteous, which was a great put-down and served Saeed right for trying to feed his ego. Flash cut to the crime flashback of Supreme Allah, aka Kevin Ketchum, who we see playing some kind of dice game with a bunch of other guys and betting on the results. Supreme ultimately loses whatever this game is, and not taking kindly to the other fellow's boasting, Supreme shoots him twice in the back and steals his money back. He is charged with second-degree murder with a sentence of 25 years, up for parole in 10. Interesting side note here, the guy that Supreme is playing the game against and shoots in the back, the actor who's playing him, who I unfortunately don't know by name, this is the second time that he's been on the show. He was also at the card game that Jiggy Walker shot up back in Series 2 when LL Cool J guest starred. Supreme Allah is played by Lord Jamar. Born September 17, 1968 in the Bronx and raised in New Rochelle, New York, Lord Jamar, real name Lorenzo de Chalice, was introduced to hip-hop in the 1970s before attending his first shows along with DJ Daryl C of Crash Crew. Having dropped out of high school in the ninth grade, Jamar sold crack cocaine to make ends meet, but stopped after people that he knew began to receive sealed indictments. Forming the group Brand Nubian in 1989 along with Grand Pooba and Sada X, the group's debut album One For All was released in 1990. A member of the 5% Nation movement, which we'll come back to in a moment, tracks on the album featured a number of references to the movement. The group released three more albums during the 1990s, 1993's In God We Trust, 
Everything is Everything in 1994 and 1998's Foundation, leading to the group becoming one of alternative hip-hop's most acclaimed groups. In addition to his work with Brand Nubian, Jamar featured on a number of tracks with fellow hip-hop artists, including collaborations with A Tribe Called Quest, Artifacts, Shabazz the Disciple, and various members of Wu-Tang Clan, before making his acting debut here on Oz. So we see Supreme get introduced to Saeed, who's acting as his MC sponsor, and Murphy introduces Supreme as Kevin Ketchum, something which Supreme calls him on, proclaiming that Ketchum is his government name, and that his real name is Supreme Allah. Rather than push the issue, Murphy says fine, let's go, and does actually call him Alar as they go. Murphy knows when to pick his battles, I'll give him that much. As Supreme makes his way through M-City, the other inmates take notice of his arrival. His reputation obviously precedes him. Cyril asks Augustus who it is, as Augustus says that he knew Supreme back on the corner when he used to sell drugs, a seed being planted for a future Augustus storyline. Guzmales asks what kind of name is Supreme Allah, as Augustus explains about Supreme being a 5%er, in which Supreme believes that 5% of all black men are enlightened with the true understanding of life, with Ryan chiming in about how they also believe that the black man is God, and that the white folk are the devil. Keller breaks it down a little further, saying that they're basically Muslims, except that they smoke weed and deal drugs, and that ultimately they do what they have to do. So this whole 5 percenter concept, as I mentioned a moment ago, and which is something that Lord Jamar is heavily involved with in his real life, is a reference to the 5% Nation movement, also known as the Nation of Gods and Earths, who broke away from the Nation of Islam in 1963 under the leadership of Clarence Smith, known as Clarence 13X, forming a new revisionist movement. The group have rejected being referred to as a religion, instead preferring to be known as a culture, with its teachings being known as Supreme Mathematics. Poet notices that Supreme is to be his new cellmate, and heads up to his pod to talk with him. Supreme goes to shake Poet's hand, but Poet tells him that he isn't buying whatever Supreme is selling, saying that he's met a lot of 5%ers in his time, and names the Prophet Musa, as well as something about how much the earth weighs. Musa is the name given for Moses in Islam, while for those interested and according to scientists, the earth is suggested to weigh approximately 13 billion trillion tonnes. Poet says that they're stuck in Oz together and that he doesn't need Supreme to be preaching to him, which Supreme accepts, the two of them having come to an understanding. Poet sits down at the desk and starts to write in his notebook as Supreme asks if he can read some of Poet's work, as Poet tosses him a copy of the Unheard America book, another one of the good callbacks that the show does from time to time. Poet breaks his pen and goes to try and find another in his footlocker as Supreme says that he enjoys his work. He gives Poet a new pen from his back pocket, meaning that someone has done a poor job of checking Supreme when checking him in for weapons. It might only be a pen, but you could do some damage with that if you really wanted to. Cut to the classroom where Arif has called for a meeting with Supreme, telling Supreme that he needs to fall in line behind the Muslims, Supreme saying that he has no issue working with them. Arif doesn't feel as though Supreme is understanding what he's saying though, but Supreme disagrees and says that Arif doesn't want him any more than the devil does, and gets up to leave. Arif takes exception to being snubbed, and tells Supreme that he will obey him as the other Muslims crowd around him, Supreme warning them not to touch him. Diffusing the situation, Saeed tells everyone to back off and starts to talk to Supreme, saying that the Muslims see his way, the 5% way, as a corruption of the truth, as Arif says that they don't want Supreme poisoning the minds of the young Muslims in Oz. 
Supreme says that Wiley's and Ozil speak his mind, and that whoever listens, listens, and that those who don't listen will be damned, as he pushes past a reef as the scene closes. It was interesting to see here that although Saeed is still very much on the fringes of the Muslim group in general, and Arif has made that known to him, Saeed is still a very important communicator for them. Arif could have quite easily just told Saeed to butt out of the conversation, but deep down he knows of Saeed's importance despite clearly being the group's leader now. I also felt that this was a very good introduction for Supreme Allah. He's instantly elevated above previous new inmates that we've seen on the show and seen as a threat very early on. So good work all round. Cut to Quern's office where he is meeting with Adebisi. And I liked how Quern's has decorated outside of the office with tribal prints as well as inside. You certainly get the feeling of a new presence making itself at home within the unit. Quern's thanks Murphy for bringing Adebisi, and Murphy asks whether or not Quern's wants him to be in the office too. But Quern's dismisses him, which doesn't sit well with Murphy. He knows that something is afoot. Quern's closes the window blinds for privacy, shutting Murphy out, something which he then does at the other window to close out the Muslims, who are watching on from the balcony. We don't get to be clued in on this meeting though, as we cut to the laundry room where Adebisi approaches Saeed. Sensing that Adebisi is up to something, seemingly because he always is whenever he comes to meet with him, Saeed asks what Adebisi wants. Adebisi tells him that the earth is about to quake, and that he's come to warn him to take shelter. Saeed asks how big a quake are we talking about, as Adebisi says that it'll be a biggie, but that Saeed will be safe if he joins him. Saeed tells Adebisi that he honours him with the offer, but he must once again refuse, Adebisi liken it to asking out a girl. Saeed says that Adebisi could just tell him what's going on, but we hear the siren for the count sounding in the distance as Adebisi leaves, but not before telling Saeed that he'll find out what's going on soon enough. Although this was another short scene between these two, I always really enjoy them. Eamon and Adewale play off of each other so well. They always create this tense atmosphere in their scenes together. With the inmates in place for the count, Quens takes this opportunity to announce his changes to M-City. I have decided to junk the council that used to meet regularly and replace that system with trustees who will be responsible for citing grievances and maintaining order. These trustees will be Simon Adebisi, Chucky Pancamo, and Enrique Morales. Now, having met with each of you individually, I've decided to transfer several of you back to GenPop. The following men will follow Officer Johnson out. 97H813, Hanky. 99S812, Sams. 98B643, Blakely. 97S532, Simpson. 95J932, Jarvis. 98H432, Hoyt. This sucks! I will ask your opinion, Hoyt. That's enough out of you. Grab your stuff! So, McManus Council of Inmates is out and Quern's Court of Trustees is in as we see the named inmates head out of M-City and off to Unit B. Murphy is up in Quern's office, saying that making Adebisi, Chucky and Morales the trustees is nuts, describing them as the three worst motherfuckers in the place, and questions the logic of moving the Aryans and the bikers out of M-City. 
Quan says that he isn't McManus, and that he isn't looking to create the Oz version of the Rainbow Coalition, a reference to the anti-racist multicultural group of the late 1960s, and that he's made his decision based on looking at the men's records, saying that they all have a history of violence. Murphy points out that Adebisi does too, but Quans tells him that he's going to have to learn to trust him. Murphy seems more put out that policy changes weren't discussed with him beforehand. He is still head CEO after all, but Quans says that isn't his style, and that if Murphy doesn't like that, he can follow the rest of them out of the door. Murphy saying go ahead, and that the sooner the better. In the place of the inmates that have left, we see the arrival of Mondo Brown and Leroy Tidd, who were both greeted by Adebisi, as well as a number of other inmates. Arif confronts Adebisi about his knowledge of being made a trustee, asking whether or not he knew in advance. Adebisi tells him yes, but that he was sworn to secrecy, as Arif asks why he wasn't named a trustee also, Adebisi saying that he'll have to speak to Quans. Arif also mentioned about how none of the new arrivals are Muslim, Adebisi telling him again to speak to Quans. Arif mentions that they had a deal, Adebisi telling him, yes, we did, before excusing himself as he has some business to do. He heads over and shakes hands with Supreme, as Arif and Saeed give knowing looks to each other. Arif tries to talk with Quans later in the day, but he brushes Arif off, saying that he'll speak to him later, even threatening Arif with new head CEO, Officer Johnson, played by Jerome Preston Bates in his first appearance on the show. Cut to Unit B, where everyone seems to be just hanging out as normal, until we hear some moaning coming from one of the cells, which seems to be being guarded by quite a number of inmates, I'm sure nothing bad or out of the ordinary is going on. McManus, who apparently hears the moaning despite being in the Unit B office, as well as a number of COs find some poor bastard being raped by another inmate. Neither of these inmates are anyone of note, they're just here to get us to the next scene with Gloria attending to this man's injuries calling for the equipment to conduct an anoscopy, which is an examination of the anal canal using small instruments. We don't stay with this scene long, in fact we seem to be doing that a lot this episode. Everything is moving along at quite a pace, as we head down to Death Row where Nat is watching TV, where they're showing one of Devlin's campaign commercials. Mark asks Nat to turn the TV down, but Nat tells him that they're waiting for their soap to come back on, and that Mark has left Felicia again. That is apparently a reference to the show General Hospital, a show which is still running today and which originally premiered in 1963, making it the longest running soap opera in American history, although I'm not sure how many times Mark has left Felicia in that time. Rather than continue the argument, Nat turns off the TV and asks why Mark's always so grumpy and what he's up to, Mark being in the middle of painting a portrait of himself on his cell wall, saying that he wants to leave something behind after his execution. Banter ensues as Moses asks Mark if he thinks whoever winds up in the cell next wants to look at Mark's ugly ass, as Mark fires back with some racism, but Lepresti is soon into the unit to quiet them down, asking whether or not his little darlings are raising their voices. Filling in a plot hole, Moses asks how come Lepresti's still on death row after Shirley told Leo about her and Lepresti's late night hookups, Lepresti saying that he was able to convince Leo that Shirley was lying. Moses says that Shirley wasn't lying though, and that Lepresti was eating a pussy like chicken chow mein, which prompts Lepresti to whack Moses in the hand that's protruding through the bars, Moses giving a great goddamn in response. Yeah, that bitch almost got me fired, but I was able to persuade Glenn that she's a lying sack of shit. But she wasn't lying. You were eating that pussy like chicken chow mein. Lepresti leaves saying that he doesn't want to hear any more talk about Shirley, as Moses says that things are different now that she's gone. 
not agreeing before suffering a coughing fit. Moses notes that that's been happening a lot lately, and that Nat should get checked out in the hospital, but Nat refuses to go, saying that they don't want to die in the hospital. Moses asks if dying in the unit is any better, with Nat giving the very Nat answer of how they'd prefer to be sunning themselves on the Riviera in the arms of a 17-year-old Adonis, but c'est la vie. Moses insists that Nat gets checked out, Nat thanking him for their concern, as Mark throws some more of his trademark bans Moses' way asking if Moses is going fag and calling him the N-word. Understandably, Moses is pretty pissed at that, but he very foolishly throws a punch at the wall, breaking his hand with a very noticeable crunch as Mark laughs away to himself. Moses gets patched up in the hospital, Gloria showing a patronising side, telling Moses that when you fight a wall, the wall generally wins, as Lepresti also gets a barb in about Moses not being known for his mental muscle. As Moses and Lepresti head back to death row, Moses asks Gloria about having not been up to visit Nat lately, Gloria saying that she assumed Dr. Prostopnik would have done so while she was on a leave of absence, but Moses says that Prostopnik hasn't been up there once, as Lepresti yanks him away telling him to quit yapping. Gloria pulls up Nat's file and then heads over to death row to examine them. Again? Have you been having chills, night sweats, shortness of breath? Yes, a trifecta. I should probably transfer you to the AIDS ward. When I got the death penalty for suffocating Antonio Napa, I thought, oh, this'll be fun. Fun? See what kills me first, the state or the disease. Guess the disease is winning. We then get the flashback to the night of Gloria's rape, which I mentioned a couple of episodes back we do actually get to see. And as with any scene of this type, isn't easy to watch and is in many ways brutal. But the following year, HBO would air a rape scene in the third season of The Sopranos, which goes to an entirely different level to what was shown here. I actually had to skip past that when I rewatched the show last year. It's fucking horrific. Gloria attempts to fight back against her attacker and actually manages to remove his mask, but she is overpowered by him and we get Augustus giving us the details of new inmate Patrick Keenan, played by Dylan Chaffley. Born June 22nd in New York City, Dylan only had a limited number of credits to his name, making his TV acting debut in 1996, appearing in Star Trek Deep Space Nine during the show's fourth season. Along with a bit part in the TV movie If Looks Could Kill, where he played Guy in Amsterdam Bar, Dylan's only other acting credit to this point came in 1999, where he appeared in the ninth season of Law and Order, before appearing here on Oz. So, Keenan is convicted of assault in the first degree and rape, and is sentenced to 12 years, up for parole in seven, and we join him in the library where he's with Timmy Kirk. Ryan enters and Timmy calls him over to meet Patrick, who's heard of Ryan before, saying that Ryan and Cyril used to run the Bridges Street Gang. A quick look on Google Maps only shows listings for two different bridge streets, one in downtown Brooklyn and the other in the financial district of Lower Manhattan. The only Bridges Street that I could find nearby was a little over 60 miles away in Warwick, which doesn't look like the kind of place a street gang would be running. Ryan notices Keenan's shamrock necklace and asks what Keenan is in for. Keenan calls the necklace his lucky charm and tells Ryan that he's in for rape and assault which he sounds strangely proud of as Timmy informs Ryan that Keenan was the guy that raped Gloria. Ryan asks Keenan why, with Keenan just saying, meh, I don't know, I was in the mood. Ryan shakes Keenan's hand before departing, 
saying that maybe they can get together sometime to sort some business, Keenan seeming open to the idea. Cut to M-City where Cyril is walking through, but he's tripped up by Leroy. He holds Cyril in position as Mondo whips his dick out and asks Cyril if he wants to suck some chocolate. Having been in a similar situation before, Cyril fights back, elbowing Leroy in the stomach and delivering a low blow to Mondo. The siren sounds as a female officer, who's new to the show, runs in to break up the fight, but she gets thrown to the ground as Mondo grabs Cyril from behind, but Cyril is able to hold his own before eventually being restrained by Menio and this new female officer. We've seen Cyril become almost invincible when he gets in a rage before, but this seems to be a step above from those previous occasions, as he's carted off to the hospital in restraints, and with Gloria giving him one milligram of Haldol. That doesn't sound like a whole lot, but that's because it's a very strong antipsychotic medication, typically used when treating schizophrenia as well as bipolar disorder, as well as severe tics in relation to Tourette syndrome, among other things. Sister Pete doesn't seem so sure about giving Cyril the medication, but Gloria proceeds with the treatment as Cyril continues to scream his lungs out. Ryan is pissed and marches into the classroom where the black inmates are meeting. He demands to know from Adebisi what's going on, but Adebisi tells him to calm down and that he's already spoken to Leroy and Mondo about the incident. He turns to them and says that this type of bullshit won't happen again as Ryan leaves, but not before giving Mondo an I'm on to you point. The scene closes with Adebisi getting right in Mondo's face, because this obviously threatens the deal that Adebisi has with Querns, and seemingly for no reason other than Leroy and Mondo are a pair of dicks. If you watch the fight back, you see that Mondo nudges Leroy to trip Cyril when he's walking by. This wasn't likely anything that was planned, just them being opportunistic. In years gone by, Adebisi probably wouldn't have given it a second thought, but he spent so much time devising this plan to get M-City under the control of a black man to benefit the black inmates, he isn't prepared to have all of that jeopardised just because of the actions of a pair of idiots, especially two who have only just arrived in M-City. Nikolai approaches Ryan in his pod, where he's watching over his sleeping brother, and asks if Cyril is okay, Ryan saying that Cyril is so tanked upon Haldol that it's like he's in a coma, Nikolai questioning whether or not that's a bad thing before leaving. There's obviously still this animosity between Ryan and Nikolai, but it was nice to see them put that aside for just a moment when talking about Cyril. As Nikolai leaves, Quans approaches Ryan, saying that he has a question, and makes his way into the pod. Ryan closes the door so we don't get to hear the conversation, but we do see Nikolai looking on from a distance before cutting to Nikolai meeting with Querns in his office later on. Querns says that he's been catching up on things that occurred before he arrived, particularly the events surrounding the death of Ralph Galino. Nikolai says that it was tragic what happened to Ralph and that drugs are a very serious problem, but Querns mentions about Ralph having no history of drugs, so how the hell did he die of an overdose? Nikolai calls that a mystery, as Querns mentions about how Nikolai and Ralph didn't get along, Nikolai asking who told him that. Querns slams his hands down on the desk, showing that he's the one in control and asking the questions, and says that Nikolai is the main suspect in Ralph's death, in fact he's Querns' only suspect, and that he's going to be watching Nikolai like a czarist eagle, which was a fantastic line from Querns, he's really establishing his dominance lately, and doing it in style as well. Heeding Quern's warning, Nikolai meets up with Jazz in the cafeteria. You said we should wait. 
So we wait and look what happens. O'Reilly goes to the hex and tells him you and I killed Golino. O'Reilly said that, you and me. Yes, so take care of him. We whack O'Reilly now, they'll have all the proof they need. Well, thanks, I got a birthday coming up. I don't want to spend it in solitary. Cut to the gym where Jazz is working out as Ryan comes over, saying that he knows Nikolai has been talking smack about him, but that Jazz can't trust Nikolai, with Jazz admitting that he doesn't, nor does he trust Ryan for that matter. Ryan then informs Jazz about Nikolai having the cell phone, saying that he bets Nikolai hasn't told Jazz about it, and that was why he had Ralph killed. Right at that moment, Nikolai enters the gym, asking Jazz what the problem is. Jazz tells Nikolai to cut the shit and produces a shank from his pocket and demands that Nikolai give him the cell phone. Nikolai tosses the phone to Jazz, a proper brick of a phone which I've said before looks very similar to my first one, and asks what's going to happen to him now, Jazz saying that he's thinking that maybe Nikolai dies. Quick as anything, Nikolai whips Jazz in the eye with his towel and tries to make his escape, but CO's run in to stop the fight. During the proceedings, Jazz drops the phone which lands right at the feet of Ryan, which was very lucky for him as he tucks the phone into his sock before making a quick exit. We get an Augustus vignette about how everybody always has an excuse for their actions, as we see Nikolai placed in protective custody as well as Jazz being placed in the hole, looks like he'll be missing that birthday after all, as the pair of them scream fuck in their respective languages, as well as a shot of a still-sleeping Cyril, and a very happy with his new phone Ryan to close out Act 2. Everybody's always looking for an excuse. I killed that man cause A, I was abused as a child, B, I had shitty parents, C, I was raised in poverty, D, all of the above. If the only thing you know from the cradle on up is violence, what other choice have you got? Fuck! Yet! What other reason do you need? <laughs> Act 3 opens with the lights coming on for a new day, as we see Ribido waking up as Booz Malice says good morning. Ribido is still giving his old friend the silent treatment though, who asks Ribido when he plans on stopping with it. Menia conducts the morning count as Ribido asks Keller how Beecher is doing, as we get a shot of Beecher still in his bunk seemingly resembling a husk of what used to be a human being. Listening out to the numbers that Menio is calling out, he calls out for someone with a 77 number before calling Keller's number, but Ribido is next to Keller so should have had his 65 number called, and next to him is Boos Malice who has a 98 number, so I've no idea who that first number belongs to. That's probably me looking a bit too much into things, but usually the show does those little kinds of details really well, it seemed really odd that it would get overlooked here. Menio calls out Beecher's number for the count, but obviously Beecher is still in his pod. He opens up the door and tells Beecher to get his ass out there, but Keller interjects and tells Menio to leave him alone, saying that you can see he's there and asks why Beecher has to stand in line, Menio saying that rules is rules. Ribido tells Menio, fuck you and fuck your rules. Ribido's standing up to authority getting some smiles from the other inmates as Murphy comes down saying that he expects Keller to be mouthy, which was a great sly dig at Keller, but he never expected it from Ribido, as Ribido says they're aware of Beecher's situation, so why torture him more? Murphy tells Menio to continue with the count as the inmates applaud Ribido and Keller asks who knew you had balls, as we zoom in on Boos and his amazing dressing gown. 
Presumably they will have had this exact same conversation the previous night, as we saw last episode that Beecher was in his bed screaming for his son. I'm fairly sure that we've had at least a full day's worth of time pass, which would mean that there have been at least two counts in that time. So why is Beecher's absence an issue all of a sudden? Rebido meets with Sister Pete, describing about a time where he was attacked by some of the black inmates and wound up in the hospital. He admits that although the bruises healed, he was floored with fear, something which he hasn't experienced in the same way as when he was supposed to be executed, and describes that killing El Cid, terrible as it was, has reinvigorated him and that he's not afraid to die anymore. Cut to the gym where we see Ryan, Cyril and Chucky, as well as a number of other inmates, working out. Rebido shuffles his way through the gym towards Ryan, asking him to teach him how to box, but Ryan brushes him off, saying that he doesn't have the time or the interest. Cyril, despite Ryan's protest, volunteers to teach Rebido instead, and their first lesson gets underway. Cut to the cafeteria, where Rebido is approached by an inmate who for some reason is wearing Robson's shirt. Seriously, Google that prison number and you get the information for Robson. I've no idea who this inmate is or why he has Robson's shirt on. Robson 2.0 tells Rebido to give him his pie, and you know this guy is a badass because he's got barbed wire tattoos. Rebido tells him no, but Robson 2.0 threatens him, saying that he's gonna break Rebido's old ass in two. Rebido tells him, okay, and shoves his pie into Robson 2.0's face much to the delight of the other inmates, apart from Bruce Mallers. Cut to M-City where Keller brings Beecher an orange from the cafeteria, Beecher apparently skipping meals as he continues to shut himself off from everyone else. Not getting much out of Beecher, Keller forces him to take the orange, telling him that he has to eat something, but Beecher squeezes the orange in his hand and then throws the crushed contents against the pod glass, making the other inmates turn around. There's a slight continuity error, in fact there's two now that I think about it, in this final shot with the inmates turning round, because you can see that Jazz is in the background of MC. We've seen in this episode already that Jazz has not only been transferred out of MC, but he's also meant to be in the hole at this point, so this is probably another one of those scenes that was meant to appear earlier on, but for some reason has got moved around during the edit. Keller heads out of the pod, leaving Beecher to wallow, and sits down with the rest of the others, Augustus quipping about how there's nothing like freshly squeezed orange juice, as Booz Malice says that cellmates are like a married couple. Nikolai asks about Rebido still ignoring him, with Booz Malice saying that it's as though Rebido is an entirely different person now, and says that after a certain age, people shouldn't change. Nikolai shushes him as Rebido approaches, but he heads straight on by them and onto the computer room to talk with Morales. Chico at first tries to prevent Rebido from entering, but Morales gives the order to let Rebido past. He takes a seat next to Morales and calls in his favour from before, as a nervous Booz Morales peers around the corner to close out a very short Act 3. Mr. Morales. Oh, slow down there, Rebido. I want to talk to you. Let him be, Chico. What do you need? When I agreed to kill Hernandez, you said in return I could have anything I wanted. True. And now you want me to repay the debt? Yes. Okay. What can I do for you? I want you to let me kill someone else. So 
So much like the previous episode, this storyline on Ribado's new attitude is being used to break up the other storylines, and it's done really well again here. Act 4 gets underway with Beecher in the visiting room, and thanks to some Dutch angles, where the framing of the shot is on a slight slant and along with some interesting colour filters, we can tell that this isn't taking place in the usual reality, as Beecher hears his children calling for him as he turns around. His joy of seeing them soon turns to horror though, when they start waving their bloody stumps, as we see Beecher crying in his bunk as Keller lies awake. I don't want to sound too harsh on whoever made these stumps for these kids, but they looked a bit shit, and like something a school player would have. They're not like something you would expect to see on an actual TV show. Keller visits with Ray and tells him about Beecher's dreams, Ray agreeing to arrange a visit with Beecher. Keller says that given Beecher's relationship with Sister Peach, she seems to have been oddly casual about Beecher's state of mind, something which Ray says isn't true. Keller reckons that her absence has something to do with him, with Ray calling Keller on his lack of self-awareness saying that not everything on the planet has to do with him. Cut to Ray walking with Pete, who completely undermines Ray's thought process by saying that Keller is in fact correct, saying that he put doubts in her mind not only about being a nun, but also about being an effective psychologist. Ray tells her that despite that, Beecher needs her, as Pete asks Ray about whether or not he remembers her telling him about putting on a facade just to get through the day. She just about manages to hold back the tears as she tells Ray that she is unable to comfort Beecher, and that she can't even look him in the eye anymore because she knows that her facade will crumble if she does, saying that feeling that way is worse than being no help to him at all. Cut to Unit B, where Schillinger is looking in the mirror pressing against the scar of where his eye was cut by Beecher, another nice callback to the early episodes of the show. Robson tells him that Beecher hasn't been out of his cell for two days, he just lies there in his bunk, sobbing like a wuss, before doing some mock crying. Schillinger seems pleased with that development, describing the hideous damage they're doing without even touching Beecher as being the elegant part of his plan, and that it's now time to put parts 3 and 4 into motion as he heads to the payphone. Hank, yeah, I want you to drop off the other package. Right, where we talked about. Bye. In Leo's office, Harrison is waiting with Ray, who's smoking a cigarette, something which he tends to do whenever he's nervous about something, so I can't imagine this is leading to anything good. Harrison takes out his frustration on Ray, lecturing him on how it's illegal to smoke in state-owned buildings, but their focus changes once Beecher arrives. Harrison tells his son to take a seat, but Beecher says that he knows what this is about, almost as if he's been preparing mentally for it to happen. Harrison tells him that the FBI have found Gary's body, Beecher saying that he knew his son was dead when he heard about the hand that arrived in the mail. Expecting more bad news, Beecher asks about Holly's whereabouts, but there isn't any news on her. He wants to be allowed to attend Gary's funeral, Harrison saying that arrangements have already been made, and that he wants Gary buried next to his mother, so that when the time comes, Beecher can see the graves that he's dug lined up one next to the other. That proves too much for Harrison to take, who grabs his son for a hug as Beecher mentions about how he can't cry because he doesn't have any tears left. He exits the office as Harrison continues to weep, as Ray takes out another cigarette. Back in their pod, we see Beecher getting dressed for the funeral as he asks Keller a question, saying that he hasn't asked it before because he didn't want to know the answer. 
He mentions about Keller's previous marriages and wonders whether or not he was the first man in Keller's life. Keller sniggers at first, Beecher saying, well, I guess that answers my question. But Keller just thinks it's an odd question to be asking at such a time, as Beecher mentions about the FBI linking Keller to the series of homosexual murders that Taylor spoke of last episode. Beecher says that he isn't seeking a confession, just whether or not Keller has ever felt this way for another man, Keller swearing to Beecher that he hasn't. Beach, however, says that Keller is lying, which, let's be honest, has happened enough times now that he should be wise to it, and leaves to attend the funeral. At the funeral, Beecher, flanked by two COs in their going-out gear, is uncuffed so that he can approach Gary's coffin. He places his hands on top of the coffin and tells his son, Sweet dreams, baby, as the scene closes on a wide shot where we see that the coffin is in front of a stained-glass window. I couldn't find anything definitive on this, but this funeral scene looks as though it was filmed on the same set that's used for Leo's office. It's got the same beigey, brownish walls, and I imagine that curtain that we see in the background before the final shot is covering what we normally see as the bookcases surrounding the office door. That final shot with the stained glass window as well looks like the normal position of the window in the office too, with the big open space created by removing Leo's desk. I could be completely wrong about that, but we've talked about the show having to make the most of what they have due to the limited budget, and the layout of everything looks too similar for me to think that this is anything other than a pre-existing set just redressed. Ray looks out of the window of his office as Schillinger is brought in for a meeting. He offers Schillinger a cigarette before lighting one up himself. Ray is ploughing through his pack of smokes in this episode. Possibly because he's nervous about asking Schillinger about Shirley's pre-execution hint about Schillinger perhaps being her baby's father, once again mentioning the old US Postal Service motto. Schillinger tells Ray that he's wrong, denying that he ever had sex with Shirley, perhaps due to the impracticalities we discussed last episode. Not that he didn't want to, of course, and that even if Ray was right, what does it matter? She's dead anyway. Ray admits that while he knows Schillinger's reputation, he doesn't know what Schillinger is capable of, but even he finds it hard to believe that Schillinger would have a young boy killed, saying that Gary never hurt a soul. Schillinger denies doing anything to Beecher's son, as Ray tells him that it was Beecher who found Hank. Schillinger says that he knows that, and that Beecher did it to fuck with him the same as he did with Andrew, but Ray says that he did it to try and make up for what happened with Andrew, in an effort to put all the anger and hatred that exists between the two behind them. Ray swearing on his vows as a priest that he's telling the truth, and that he'd be damned for all time if he's lying. He asks Schillinger if he has any decency left in him, if he has a soul at all, to not let anything happen to Beecher's daughter, and that he'll let her go free. Schillinger gets up from his seat and leaves the office not saying a word as the scene closes. And I really enjoyed this one, it's not often that we see Ray and Schillinger interact. JK is fantastic as always, but BD was great here too, begging Schillinger to do the right thing, even bringing up the mere idea that after everything that he's done, that Schillinger might have something of a soul. Great stuff here. Cut to Beecher meeting up in the cafeteria once again with Eli Zabitz, who's done some of the digging that Beecher asked about regarding the kidnapping. Beecher asks for the info, but Eli isn't willing to give it up, pointing out that they haven't even discussed a price yet. Eli lays it on thick, talking about a daughter who apparently needs some serious dental work doing, and that he'll give Beecher the info if he agrees to pay the dental bills, which Beecher begrudgingly does. Eli says that he's heard, 
from a very reliable source on the outside, mind you, that this was a job for hire and the kidnapper was a perp named Bob Bigbutt Tolan. Beecher asks who it was that hired Bob and his massive ass, but Eli admits that he's reluctant to tell because it's someone that Beecher knows nearly and dearly. Beecher just asks him again who it was, as Eli says that it was Keller. Beecher asks if Eli is sure, Eli saying that he's as sure as anybody can be about anything, as Beecher looks towards Keller who sat at the back of the cafeteria. Eli heads out and passes a smug-looking shilling it, as we cut to Beecher meeting with Agent Taylor, telling him to find the truth and that Keller has done a lot of fucked-up things to him, but this doesn't make any sense. Taylor says that guys like Keller are hunters and that they kill for sport before leaving. It's hard to tell if Taylor has been somewhat homophobic with that in how he says guys like Keller. Is he implying that all gay men are like that, or just those that kidnap? It's kind of played ambiguously. Taylor tries to get some answers as he meets with Keller. You think you're a pretty cool customer, huh? Well, let's just say I've spent my share of time in interrogations. You ever hear of a fellow by the name of Mark Karachi? No. Byam Lewis? Nope. How about Bryce Tibbetts? No, no, and no. All three of these men were homosexuals. All three hung out in the same gay bar. All three turned up dead. That is, after they were sodomized and tortured. Yeah. Yeah. But here's what's curious. You moved to the city in December of 97. These men were killed in January, March, and May of 98. You got sent to Oz in June of that year. Suddenly, the killing stopped. What a bizarre coincidence. We know you're guilty. You got proof? Evidence, witnesses. You frequented the same gay bar. <laughs> uh, well, you know, that doesn't make me a murderer anymore. It makes me a fag. And yet you are, aren't you? A fag. <laughs> you suck the bias beaches card. Hey, he sucks mine. From what I hear, you and he have had a pretty bumpy courtship, huh? Lots of pain inflicted on both sides. You went on this latest round? I don't follow you. The death of his son. Me kill his son. You joking, right? No one of you ever known the FBI to joke. Great little scene here between Taylor and Keller, but something that I noticed here that's unrelated to this was with how the room is set up. We see it has two standing flags set up, one of which is the familiar Stars and Stripes, but the one that caught my eye was the blue one over on Taylor's side of the room. It might be backwards, but you can clearly see part of the word Excelsior as well as the shield that is depicted in the coat of arms of New York, which means that we can finally put to rest any question about which state Oz is set in. The flag has had an update since this episode was broadcast. The motto E Pluribus Unum was added to the flag in 2020, but there is no doubt now that Oz is indeed under the jurisdiction of New York State. Cut to the lights going out in M-City, with Beecher in his bunk and Keller washing up which I've just realised makes it sound like he's doing the dishes. He's not doing that, he's getting ready to go to bed. He asks how Beecher is doing and mentions that he's been very quiet today, which considering that it was his son's funeral, I'd say that's a good reason to have been a bit quiet. Beecher asks what he should do if he ever finds out who killed Gary, 
Keller saying that he should whack the guy, and that he'd even help Beecher do it. Keller turns back to finish washing up, again, not doing the dishes, and removes his shirt. And in that moment, Beecher pulls out a shank and attacks Keller. But Keller is able to fend Beecher off as the two fight up against the pod glass. Beecher, screaming, you murdered my son, tries to stab Keller. But Keller is able to push Beecher back against the wall as CEOs run in to try and break up the fight. Keller asks if Beecher really thinks he could do that as Beecher says that Keller is capable of anything and the two of them continue to brawl out of the pod and onto the floor of M-City itself as the other inmates look on. Having finally been broken up, Keller is led away calling Beecher a bitch as Beecher is restrained on the floor, their friendship and ultimately their relationship seemingly completely in tatters once again. Over in Unit B, Eli tells Schillinger that he wants his money as Schillinger tells Robson to pay the man. Robson asks if the money is really for Eli's daughter, Eli insisting, yeah, you should see a mouth man, nothing but decay. We get a final Augustus vignette, asking whether it's truly a matter of genetics or environment, as well as looking for the easy answer, as we see Schillinger placing another phone call to Hank to close the episode. Genetics? Or environment? Like in everything else, society searches for the magic bullet, the easy answer. Because the more complex the answer is, the more terrified we become. Is the root of violence much deeper, much darker? How about pure evil? Maybe we human creatures are inherently evil. Maybe evil is ingrained, embedded in our souls. Philip Wilson used to joke, the devil made me do it. Maybe he was right. Or maybe not. Hello, Hank. Yeah. I want you to drop off the other package at the grandparents' house. No. Alive. So there you go, Series 4, Episode 5, Grey Matter. I got the feeling that this was more of a transition episode than what we've had in the last couple of outings. While at times it felt as though things were moving along at quite a pace, especially with Bruno Gergen's introduction followed quickly by his death early on, everything else seemed to settle itself into something of a mid-series resting place. Gergen's death got us over the hump of Mobey having to kill someone, while the rest of the episode seemed to focus mainly on Quern's changes beginning to be implemented in M-City. While it was nice to finally see his wife on screen for the first time, Leo's falling into line on the campaign trail was as close to anything that I've ever felt as being filler content on the show, while Rebido's storyline relating to his new attitude continues to progress little by little. Ryan being so heavily involved in two different storylines, one seeing him meet his obsession's rapist while the other sees him battling with Nikolai over the cell phone, kind of means that he and by proxy Cyril are a bit all over the place at the moment but at the same time, neither storyline seemed to take much focus away from the episode. The introduction of Supreme Allah was well executed and set him up straight away as not only a strong ally for Adabizi's new M-City vision, but a threat to the always-in-danger Muslim group. The feud between Beecher and Schillinger continues to be the show's best arc, though. Schillinger once again finding a way to manipulate the situation and torture Beecher without ever being directly involved. While he may have been expecting the news to arrive, the death of Gary is another 
devastating blow to Beecher, who has once again found himself in a place where he seemingly can't trust those closest to him. Whereas previously he was convinced of Keller's innocence, everything that he's been told seems to point the finger at Keller's involvement, with nothing seemingly acting in Keller's defence. So all that Beecher can see is this ever-widening chasm of doubt between the two of them. A good episode all round, but definitely one that you can tell is just settling things down somewhat in order to build up again as we head towards the finale of this block of episodes. No deleted scenes to talk about for this episode, so with a death toll of two, we say goodbye to the child actor who played Gary Beecher, as well as Detective Bruno Gergen, aka Harry O'Reilly. Following his extremely brief run on Oz, Harry appeared in the movie One-Eyed King in 2001, before returning to TV in 2002 with credits for Family Law and The Job. In 2003, and with the help of his friend Ben Stiller, Harry turned his hand to directing as well as earning writer and producer credits for the comedy movie Crooked Lines, starring Adam Treese, Jim Brewer and Burt Young, as well as featuring an appearance by Oz alumni David Johansson. Appearing mostly in minor roles in both film and on TV, Harry made his first appearance on Law & Order Criminal Intent in 2006, before landing the recurring role of Detective McCarthy on The Black Donnellys in 2007, appearing for a total of three episodes in a show which also featured Oz alumni Kirk Acevedo and Kevin Conway. In 2012, Harry returned to the director's chair for the short film Julie, as well as working as casting director on Paranormal Asylum the following year. Harry would also direct on the TV miniseries Between Lives, Love is Blind in 2016, as well as the short film Family Day in 2018. Also that year, Harry directed and worked as a co-writer on the short film Losers Hate to Win. At the time of recording, Harry's most recent acting credit is listed as being for a 2019 appearance in Law & Order Special Victims Unit, appearing as Tom Mayers in the episode Facing Demons for the show's 20th season. Harry's turn as Gergen does gain him entry into the lounge of the Oz One and Done Club, and he's also been joined this episode by Jonathan Demme, who we saw briefly as the director of Leo's campaign materials. Jonathan continued to work as a director on feature films, including The Truth About Charlie and 2004's remake of The Mancurian Candidate, as well as working on a number of documentaries, such as Neil Young, Heart of Gold in 2006, and Jimmy Carter, Man from Plains in 2007. In 2008, Jonathan directed the film Rachel Getting Married, which earned nominations for Best Feature Film and Best Director at the Independent Spirit Awards, while in 2011 he directed two episodes of the TV series Enlightened. In 2013 and 2014, Jonathan would direct episodes of The Killing, while in 2015 he would direct his final feature film, Ricky and the Flash. Jonathan Demme passed away on April 26, 2017 at his home in Manhattan, following complications from esophageal cancer and heart disease at the age of 73, with his final directing work, an episode of the series Seven Seconds on Netflix, being released the following year. Following this episode, guest director Brian Cox has remained a force in acting, with roles in the movies Super Troopers and L.I.E. in 2001, while in 2002 he appeared in The Bourne Identity, as well as two episodes of Frasier. In 2003, Brian appeared as William Stryker in the clumsily titled X-Men sequel, X2 X-Men United, as well as appearing as Agamemnon in 2004's Troy, and in 2005 appeared in Matchpoint and Red Eye. In 2006, Brian landed the recurring role of Jack Langreish in the third season of HBO's Deadwood, as well as appearing in the movies Running With Scissors and Zodiac. 
That same year, Brian also returned to the theatre stage, appearing in rock and roll at the Duke of York's Theatre in London, transferring with the show to Broadway in 2007 at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theatre. With recurring roles in 2009 on TV series in the UK for The Take and The Day of the Triffids, and in the US for Kings, where he reunited with Oz alumni Eamon Walker, Brian also earned credits for the movies The Good Heart and Fantastic Mr. Fox. Following a recurring role on 2011's The Sinking of the Laconia, Brian appeared in that championship season at the Bernard B. Jacobs Theatre, as well as landing recurring roles on a number of TV miniseries, including The Straits in 2012, 2013's Bob Servant Independent, as well as 2014's The Game and 2015's The Slap. Along with a recurring role in 2016's Medici, Brian has become best known in recent years for his role as Logan Roy on HBO's Succession first airing in 2018 and for which Brian won a Golden Globe Award, which at the time of recording is set to return to screens in the autumn. Brian's most recent theatre credit came in 2019 for The Great Society, where he appeared as President Lyndon B. Johnson and which played for 72 performances at the Vivian Beaumont Theatre. Also at the time of recording, Brian is credited for 2021's Lawrence of Arabia, listed as completed on awaiting release, as well as the movies Skelly and Prisoner's Daughter, and the TV series Unsinkable, all of which are listed as being in post-production, and he is also listed as part of the voice cast for the upcoming anime series Blade Runner Black Lotus, set to launch on Crunchyroll in late 2021. My episode MVP, and in a first for the podcast, we have joint winners this episode. First off is Father Ray for not only continuing to try and be a pillar of support for Sister Pete, but also for doing everything that he can to finally put to rest some of the hostilities between Beecher and Schillinger. Being a peacekeeper is a key part of his job, but in the wake of the death of a child, Ray has had to take the bull by the horns to try and quell the hatred between the two men. Outside of simply begging and appealing to Schillinger's minuscule sense of decency, there's not really a whole lot else that he can do. But if he doesn't try, he could potentially begin to doubt his own abilities as a priest, putting himself in a similar position to where Pete has found herself. The second winner, and I never thought I'd see the day that this happened, is Vern Schillinger. There were times in Series 3 where it looked as though Schillinger was on the way to settling down somewhat. I wouldn't go so far as to say that he was changing his ways, but he did seem to be taking a step back somewhat from his sadistic streak, especially once his son wound up in Oz. All of that changed following Andrew's death, and especially after he got the wrong end of the stick as to Beach's intentions about reuniting him with his lone surviving son. And that's the key thing to remember at this point in their saga. After everything that's gone before, including the death of Beach's wife Genevieve, Schillinger and Beecher are both still alive, but two of their offspring, one of whom was a ten-year-old boy with his whole life still ahead of him, they've perished along the way in this seemingly never-ending battle. Killing Beecher's daughter Holly would only continue the misery for Beecher, something which obviously forms part of Schillinger's plan, but it only gives Beecher another reason to mount a retaliation. By doing the right thing and calling Hank to release Holly at least gives some glimmer of hope that this feud can finally end. So for those reasons, Father Ray and Vern Schellinger are the first ever joint winners of the episode MVP. If you need to catch up on any episodes of the podcast, you can do so by heading on over to Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Stitcher Radio, Acast, Castbox, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, 
or wherever you get your podcasts from. There you will find the first three series of Inside Oz, as well as what we've covered in Series 4 so far, and you will also find the Outside Oz bonus episodes as well. Subscribe to the show so that you never miss an episode, leave a five-star review wherever you can to help with exposure for the podcast, and if you have any Oz-related or non-related questions or comments, you can get in touch with the show by emailing insideozpodcast at gmail.com, or on social media on both Instagram and Twitter where you can get all the updates about the show by following the handle at Inside Oz Podcast. Next time on Inside Oz, somebody asked me for some advice the other day, which admittedly doesn't happen very often, but it did mean that I got to give them Series 4, Episode 6, a word to the wise. Where Quans continues to implement change in M-City, Nat begins to prepare for their execution, Mobe has a new task set by Adebisi, and Ryan receives an unwanted phone call in his ongoing battle with Nikolai. All of this and more, but until then, I have been Neil Thompson, and I will catch you on the next episode of Inside Oz, the original Oz Review Podcast. Catch you later, everyone.